funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Silver Screen Video with Jonathan, my co-host Jacob. Jacob, how are you doing this uh, this bright, sunny, beautiful day? I don't know. I can't guarantee you it's that way in New York. I'm speaking solely from my experience, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not sunny here at all. It's uh, cloudy. You know, we got the uh, the Delta variant uh, going crazy up here in New York. Uh, the streets are running with blood. You know, we're uh, we're doing okay. You just had to bring up the Delta variant. Like, what? It's it's in the news. There's, there's no reason to do that. People come here to escape, to love cinema, embrace it, uh, be covered in the blanket of this art form. And you're talking about the fucking Delta variant. Oh, okay. Like, um, I live in <laughs> I uh, live in Florida. We're the laughing stock of this country. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what I meant to say is uh, fucking uh, Pooh Bear is outside my house uh, skipping around and there's uh, a rainbow with a pot of gold at the end. Is that what you want to hear? Thanks, Christopher Robin. I appreciate <laughs> the sarcastic update. Um, anyway, guys, today we are doing the volume two of the Italian director, the Italian stallion himself. Federico Fellini. I'm not sure if anybody's ever called him that, but I just did. No, I like it. Italian stallion, you know, he's clearly uh, clearly a virile man, you know, kind of stocky. Um, kinda, kinda... I don't know if I can. I don't know if that first part's true. I'm not even sure how you would know that first part's true. I mean, doesn't it seem that way? I mean, there's just all kinds of like sex stuff in his movies. I just assume, you know, that he was uh, he was a very, you know, he was a sex haver, you know? You know, I started off wanting to disagree with you, but you've sold me on it because he does have so much life and like and and like sexual edges to his movies that yeah, this dude, yeah, he was definitely getting it on often. Oh, absolutely. Um, he's in Italy, he's eating pasta, he's drinking wine, he's having sex with just God knows who. So I mean Julietta yeah. Messina for one, you know. That's and true. Obviously we know he's probably cheating on her for years. You know, so that's true. That's true. Um, so, well, yeah, he before was a lover. we continue, he was a fighter. Sex... <laughs> <laughs> before before we go down the sex life of Fellini, um, guys, if you want to listen to volume one, you can go back all the way back to episode 23. We covered eight and a half. We covered La Dulce Vida or The Sweet Life. We covered La Strada, which I still stand by being the best movie he's made to date. Uh, not that he'll be making any new ones. Or have we also covered... Uh, <laughs> to date. <laughs> we also covered uh, Amarcord, um, which I did not enjoy. So go back and listen to that episode if you want, but it is not required in order to listen to this one. Uh, but we do recommend it just because uh, you can get like a full picture of Fellini. But Jacob, what are we talking about today? Well, we got some good ones today. We got 1953... Uh... I don't, I, I don't know how you say this. I Vitaloni. I know, I know Vitaloni, obviously, but it, I was thinking like, is it E Vitaloni? Is like, you know, I don't know how to say it. I, Vitaloni. I would have said I Vitaloni. So I, I stand by, I stand by your pronunciation. All right, there we go. Uh, I Vitaloni, one of his very first movies um, from 1953. 
A few years later, we've got Knights of Kiberia from 1957, uh, starring uh, his wife, Julieta Messina. And then we've got a, uh, I guess not late career, but later career, uh, 1969 Fellini Satyricon. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be talking about those three. A little bit of a, I mean, Kiberia and Vitaloni are, are, are definitely um, the two that are kind of related here in the sense that they were made way closer together um, and, and are definitely closer in tone than something like Satyricon, but still a pretty pretty good variety here. Yeah, we've got a good variety. Let me tell you about that variety. Um, we've got a masterpiece. We've got a fantastic film, but I don't know if I can call it a masterpiece. And we've got a well-orchestrated prank movie. Um, so those are the three movies we're discussing today. Um, I'm excited to I'm excited to figure out which one's which. I think I know what the third one is, but uh, we'll 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 keep this suspense going. Um, well, the prank movie is clearly Knights of Kiberia. Um, <laughs> a riot, a film riot. Um, um, yeah, let's just uh, let's just jump into uh, to I Vitaloni if you want to, and just kind of because because I this is my first time watching this, and uh, I was quite taken. Yeah, let's. Uh, oh, 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 wait. Patreon.com slash silver screen video uh, if you want more from us. Uh, we're plugging it at the top because God knows what kind of shenanigans we're going to get into at the end talking about Satyricon. Uh, That's true. That's true. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, if you want more, we got a Mad Men series we got going. We got, uh, I don't know, you'll see it on the Patreon. Just go there, patreon.com slash silver screen video. Uh, check it out if you want more from us. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I Vitaloni. Yeah, so you had seen this before, right? Yes, I had seen this movie before. I was also quite taken with it. I really liked this movie, and um, I was excited for you to watch it. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, uh, so just real quick, the synopsis of this, it's a character study of five young men at crucial turning points in their lives in a small town in Italy. I do take issue with that synopsis because the movie really only pays close attention to three of them. Hmm. Um, because honestly, like, you know, we're going to be jump, we can just jump all over the place with this. We, we typically don't, uh, follow plot structure through these films. So the, the, the individual who is the one who gets away, we, the movie never really focuses on him. He is a byproduct of focusing on, um, Fausto. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to see this because, you know, this is a very early career movie from Fellini. I mean, uh, what, 19, 1953, was it? Yeah, uh, so it, I think the white Sheik was 52, which white, the white Sheik was the first movie that he directed solo. Uh, Variety lights was, I think 51, which he co-directed with some Variety lights is also very good. I would recommend it. Um, I have not seen Variety lights, but I have seen the white Sheik. And, mm. uh, and yeah, that, 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 cause, cause then he, he cut his teeth on writing a lot of other material and co-directing and stuff like before he really took the reins is that that's pretty much what, what his career was. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. He was, so, I mean, yeah, he was deeply involved in the, in the post-war Italian film industry, neorealism and otherwise, you know? So what I, the reason I feel like that's a little relevant is because early in his career, we're getting a pretty like it's a lighthearted film to an extent. Um, I would, I would lean more into the comedy aspect of it than the drama. Like the, it's considered both, but 
even the dramatic parts, there's a play like a, like a loose play of, of amusement to it. Right. Um, so, but it's also like a really contemplative movie about growing up and what it's like to grow up in a small town and dream of getting out. And, and as played out as that story might seem, first of all, this was 1953. And second of all, you're getting it from a different culture's perspective. Right. So it was just, it, it was, it was, a. Uh, it was honestly a movie that captivated me from the beginning. I was literally like, I, I, everything was so relatable for the most part in terms of how these guys felt and, and how they were growing up in this town. And, uh, and, and honestly, man, like it, it was just one of those movies where I, I, I would watch it again right now. Like I would just put it on and watch it. It was just a really, uh, enjoyable ride. Um, what about this movie? Do you like, I'm assuming we kind of relate to this movie in the same way. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, the the whole growing up in a small town and, you know, dreaming of the big city, you know, it, it's not an accident that a lot of young artists uh, want to make movies like this because it's something that they have most recently experienced. You know, um, I'm just thinking of like Lady Bird, you know, being the first movie that Greta Gerwig directed, um, uh, you know, certainly the first uh creative product that she had complete control over um you know it's no accident that she made you know something like that that's autobiographical and about you know leaving a place and coming to a you know the big city or whatever um and i mean even you know i, I one, of, one of the the classics of this genre is um the bruce springsteen album born to run you know uh which you know that was, you know, Bruce Springsteen was that kid in New Jersey who was, uh, you know, itching to get out and itching to uh, make a life for himself, you know, outside of the small New Jersey town that he lived in and on and on and on and on. There's obviously many examples of this. And, you know, so this is a familiar genre, but and, and you know, for that reason, it doesn't have some of the kind of. um mind-blowing mind-blowing is maybe a little bit of a cliche but you know some of these like crazy originality of some of Fellini's later work um I'm specifically thinking about Kiberia eight and a half La Dolce Vita um and uh you know so it doesn't have that like kind of amazing originality where we're we're really living in Fellini's world right it doesn't have that kind of sublimity and originality but it does ring true, like on a very like personal level, like it's 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 authentic. You can tell this is the lived experience of there. There is a Fellini stand in, you know, and it is the kid, you know, who gets away at the end of the movie. Um, and yeah, I, I like the fact that you said just real quick, I want to I want to like make sure we cover this. I like the fact that you said, yeah, there's not and there's not like a ton of originality per se. Mm. Um, for a project like this, but it's so real. Right. Like the sincerity of it is really what I, I feel what makes this film so easy to attach to because yeah, it's not the most original. It's a pretty played out idea, but it's, it's, it kind of covers a lot of different aspects to where it's like, it's shooting a broad bullet in terms of like, y- you have to relate to one of these guys. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. On some level, this has to appeal to you in your life, and that's really what what I what I really loved about it. Yeah, I mean, well, okay, so let's just just for I mean, explanation slash um, maybe a conversational jumping off point. I mean, what are the five characters? We've got the kind of Fellini surrogate who 
is, you know, and, and directors often cast themselves as the voyeurs or the watchers. You know, I'm thinking of um, uh, Scorsese, uh, you know, at the beginning of Goodfellas, you know, looking out at the the, the kid looking out at the gangsters and um, uh, he did or, wait. No, sorry. I'm thinking of the departed, not, not, not Goodfellas. Um, uh, yeah. The departed. Uh, or uh, I'll let that slide. <laughs> uh, or uh, Scorsese, you know, being the kid in the clock tower, you know, in, in Hugo uh, or in, in, in the clock at the train station, you know, where he's like looking out and watching. And oftentimes directors will, will kind of their director surrogate will be the, the kid who, or the person who just stands by and watches things. And that's, um, that's clearly Fellini's uh, alter egos role in this. So we got him. Um, we got the main guy who is, uh, is kind of forced into a shotgun wedding. Right. Um, I mean, that's not what I remember him for, but yeah, Fausto. <laughs> 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 All right, fair. Uh, we got the uh, we got the singer, um, uh, the playwright, and what's the fifth one? The fifth one is kind of in, uh, ill defined, right? Yeah, the fifth one. Uh, yeah, I agree. Like that. That's that. You get to know him by proxy because of another character, right? Like, right. So, but I mean, but honestly, at the end of the day, even though like you only get to know three of them, what I would consider intimately. Um, like they all have a touch of tragedy. That's the, and it's bizarre that they all have a touch of tragedy to their story. And the one that you don't get to know that much is the one who actually gets the escape. Right. And I thought that was really interesting. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You know, I, you know, I think there's, um, you know, I, I don't know. The story itself is kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's kind of all over the place, although there is some real tragedy to the the main guy, you know, or at least I should say the character, the character who gets the most screen time. Um, but there's also, um, y- you know, the <laughs> these like shots of these like, you know, nighttime streets, uh, uh, you know, with, um, you know, these five guys kind of wandering down them and um, you know, hoping that something better will come along and just kind of wasting their time. There's just something so poetic and something so sublime about that. It, you know, it reminds me of like mean streets or something. Um, I mean, there was, I, I am blown away by the scope that he shoots on the streets in these night scenes, not just in this, but in Kabiria as well. Yeah. Um, it is beautiful. It is, it is so well done. It really puts you in the streets. My favorite segment of this movie, and I can't even tell you why really is when the playwright is following the, uh, the, the actor to the beach and it's really windy and he loses his hat and has to chase his hat down. And it's just a really bizarre, like I read into that scene a little bit. I'm not sure if that was the intent of Bellini, but he follows him down the street and then they go to the beach and then it's as if the, and I don't know if you'll agree with this. I could be way off. Uh, this could be personal feelings, but the, the playwright that, so, so they go down these dark alleys and he's like, go to the beach and read me the third act because he has been reading him this play that he wrote and he's quite taken by it. And they get down to the beach and 
he's like, come on, let's go sit by the water and you can read it to me. And he's like, no, no, I don't want to. And then he's, you have him up on the, on the pier and you have the, the actor that he idolizes who has been in the business for years and he is going to help get this guy. He's going to launch his career. He's going to get him out of town. He says, I'm not going to like, are you afraid of me? And the camera zooms in on his face and it makes it very like villainous. And if, is villainous a word? I think it's a word. Um, yeah, I think anyway. Is a word. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the camera zooms in on his face and then he just runs away. The playwright runs away. And I loved that scene because the way they followed them down the streets, the lighting, the wind, everything seems so ominous. And considering we find out, you know, 30 minutes later that he never left town. Like I took that to represent that, that guy, the actor who he idolizes was leaving town. That's what he represented. And he was afraid of them. Right. He was either afraid of failure or he was afraid of, of, I don't know, losing money or, or what, whatever you want to assign to that. And I thought that was like, that was my favorite segment of the whole movie because it was, it was like something you could have a little fun with the guy whose sisters leaves, um, or, or the guy who, who gets the, the one character's sisters pregnant. I don't really feel like their storyline had as much weight as that one. And I think the reason for that is because of what that character represented, which is Fellini. So I don't know. It was really interesting. You can tell me if I'm way off base with that take. I don't know. Wait, so you're talking about the guy who is the writer whenever he. Whenever yeah, the they- playwright, the, 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 the guy who is the writer who reads his play yeah. to the, uh, to the, to the character, to the actor that he idolizes. Right. Right. They went and watched him at the art house and yeah, he's the guy he goes down to the beach with. Right. Right. But that's not, that's not Fellini's character who ends up leaving, is it? No, no, that's not it. But I, I thought there was a representation of it in Fellini. Like there had to be oh, some fear right. that he was going to fail. So like, so I, I, I like in a way, I feel like there is a representation given what we know about Fellini and what we've learned through watching these movies. And I've watched them in a lot of like, like interviews, Scorsese is a big fan of them. Like, I feel like it wasn't an accident. And I feel like a piece of these like a piece of him is represented by all of these. And I feel like that character was kind of his fear because this guy was a writer. He wanted to be a playwright. He wanted to be in show business. Right. Right. And I don't think that's an accident. Okay. Yeah. No, sorry. I, yeah, no, I misunderstood what you were saying. Yeah, no, yeah, I could have right. explained that poorly. No, 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 no. You know, I think you're, I think you're hundred percent right. I think, I, I think, you know, that, you know, obviously the Fellini surrogate represents Fellini, but the other, you know, uh, the other characters are like versions of Fellini that uh, that never made it out, you know, that 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 never um, <laughs> I mean, that never made it out, you know, and that's man, that's really fucking tragic, you know, like, I mean, well, I guess I shouldn't I mean, I shouldn't say it's maybe um, objectively tragic. Right. But it's tragic from Fellini's point of view. Right. Because, I mean, Fellini in 1953 is young and he works in the film industry and he gets to be a director and he gets to make a movie. And so obviously he's looking back with pity at the people who didn't make it, you know, but but I think there's but I think there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of complication there with the scene at the end with the train station and the boy at the train, Um, because. You know, I don't know. He, he, you know, Fellini's kind of surrogate 
you know, gets on the train and is going to leave. But, you know, there's, there's obviously the, 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 uh, the obvious question, right. Which is, well, is, is that going to bring him happiness going to Rome and moving to the big city? And, you know, in some ways, yes, because he'll never have to wonder, you know, about the road, not traveled, but in some ways, I mean, no, because, you know, who knows what, what lies at the end of that rail station. It could be, could be complete and utter failure. It could be the end of a needle. It could be, it could be anything, you know, you don't know. And, you know, there's something so pure, I think about the, the child at the railway station, you know, who's just kind of like, uh, there's one thing where he says, like, he asks him, like, do you like your job? And the kid's like, I guess, I don't know. Like, you know, like, why are you leaving? You know, like, like the kid is just kind of like obliviously happy and it's not even thinking about wanting to leave, you know? And so like the, the, the kid, it, it's interesting to me that the movie ends with that kid because the kid is kind of like outside of like time and space. Like he's not trying to leave and failing or trying to leave and succeeding. He is just kind of uh, blandly accepting his life and not even really thinking anything else. And it, it's interesting to me and I don't I don't quite know what to make of it that Fellini kind of ends the movie with that character you know um well I mean I I think that that kind of is something that Fellini does like he he ends movies very ambiguously like not to jump ahead to to uh Kiberia but Kiberia also has a to my mind unless you know obviously people out there that that examine these films more than myself. I feel like the end of Kabiria is very ambiguous. Um, right. So I feel like you get that a lot um, from him, but also I feel like the kid represent like the kids seeing him. I like to think, cause there's a lot of bleakness to this film, but I like to think that uh, he kind of, he's going to serve as an inspiration for this kid that I can get out and I can do mm. other things. Okay. I don't have to be here. And I love like as soon as the movie ended and I saw that and like train station endings are always like something that I'm a sucker for. Yeah. Um, and I saw that and I started thinking like I immediately was like this kid in 10 years is going to remember this moment. Yeah. And like that could be what catapults him to to get out of that town. Yeah. I mean, it's such a complicated thing, right? Because, I mean, I, I even think like you know, when we were talking about it earlier, I think I even maybe undersold a little bit just how ubiquitous this idea is in culture, right? Like, um, you know, I mean, even, even like I, I was thinking about Kendrick Lamar, you know, the rapper, like, you know, how he, like one, on his first albums, he talks about like, all he can talk about is having made it out. Right. And other people who haven't made it out and feel guilt, felt guilty about that. And, you know, that's, um, I don't know. It's such a ubiquitous thing. And like, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. I live in here in New York and it's like, you know, there's a lot of people who there's a lot of, there's a lot of elitism and a lot of people who like are really kind of, uh, what's the word? Uh, not biased, but um, th they kind of look down on people who aren't living on the coast, for example, right? That's obviously a very common thing. Everybody knows that. But, you know, the re I think one of the reasons why that is so, that idea is so prevalent, right? 
that like, for example, people in Ohio are somehow living less of a life than me and my friends are living in New York. Like the reason that idea is so prevalent is not because um, there's just these hatchlings that just hatch in the city of New York and are all of a sudden feel superior to the people who are in Dayton, Ohio. It's because the people from Dayton, Ohio that got out then resent where they came from and look down upon their, you know, the, where they came from and the people who they deem to be less sophisticated or less whatever. And that is a huge fucking part of culture because those kids that get out are the ones who get to make the movies, right? The kids that get out and go to Hollywood and make it, they're the ones who get to write the movies. They're the ones that get to make the movies. They're the ones that get to, write and make music and TV shows and what we generally think of when we think of culture. Right. And, um, you can't escape that, right. You can't escape that kind of, um, point of view and, and that kind of, uh, I don't know, societal thing that just happens, you know, where the, the kid, the, the, the ones that get out are the ones who get to tell the story and that's happening here. But I think it is an act of, artistic generosity for Fellini to end with that kid at the railway station because, and it's also an act of artistic generosity for Fellini not to make his surrogate, the main character, right? He, he is doing something more complicated than that, you know? And I think it's, um, I don't know, man, it's really powerful. Well, I think it would have been too simplistic for, for him to, to make it about the main character. Yes. Like, I'm not going to say it would have been too narcissistic because I mean, this is the movie business. And honestly, as much as I like Fellini, he seems like a narcissist. <laughs> right, um, right. Right. Um, but, but I do think it would have been less genuine because like, this isn't a biopic. Like, like Fellini didn't set out to tell his life story about how he escaped this small town. in Italy. like, it was much more complex than that. And that's right. why this movie struck me the way it did, because this movie for such an early career movie, there's so much sincerity in it. And there's so much to kind of contemplate on. Yeah. Um, I do have to ask you, do you, how long do you think Fausto uh, and his wife stayed together um, <laughs> after the end of the movie? Because I'm going to say maybe, maybe six months. Not By long. the way, how, how like a uh, three stooges, Marx brothers kind of thing was that was that ending of his storyline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His dad like takes the belt off, beats the shit out of him, but not in like a serious way. Yeah. He's like like stumbling around the room, and then the wife's like, You ever do that again? Or he's like, Don't ever leave me like that again. And then she's like, Yeah, and if you ever do that again, I'll beat you like your dad. And then they both laugh about it. <laughs> yeah, th- th- there's there's like a little Fellini's playing a, a few different instruments here, which I think I think keeps this movie from being kind of like a masterpiece. Like, you know, we're going to talk about with Kiberia or Dolce Vita or eight and a half. He's playing a couple different instruments here. One of them is just like, like you said, absolute pure slapstick. You know, one of them is, you know, kind of this romantic idea of the small town and the kid who wants to leave it and on and on and on. Uh, but, you know, something else that Fellini is doing here that, you know, some something like uh, just thinking of another neorealist movie like Bicycle Thieves or say the work of Rossellini's War Trilogy or whatever. Um, there's something he's doing here, which is he is really amping up the romance, you know, and I mean, romance in the classical sense, right? Like he is 
it, it, the Nino Rota score and the the shots of the the people walking through the you know the alleyways and we already mentioned that kind of after dark cinematography there's some real kind of uh classicism you know kind of like old hollywood romanticism going on in this movie and that's just like you said that's just one of the instruments that he's playing like you know the slapstick and the i don't know it's it's really it's really kind of a feat i, I really like this movie man i agree i i think that I'm not entirely sure I agree with your take on what keeps it from being next level like Kabiria or Lestrada, but I do agree that there's something there that keeps it from being next level. Right. Um, right. And, and, and I'll, I'll probably be able to figure it out for myself for why I think that is after the next viewing or, or two viewings. But, uh, but either way, man, like it doesn't even fucking matter. Like this movie, it's a great movie goes out. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it goes after class problems it goes after like like dude the the Fausto's the story with his father and 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 sister is so sad yeah um and, and also like it wasn't lost on me that it was so far removed from Fausto to think that she might be with his father that was literally the last place he looked right like literally right like he went to the beach he went to nanny's houses he went to all these places and that was like that that was very um, just kind of upsetting, but I do want to say one thing. The guy who played Ricardo is Fellini's brother. Really? Yeah. Ricardo Fellini. Okay. I was, I saw that when, after I watched the movie and I was like, man, I wonder if he's his brother. And I looked it up and yeah, it's, it's, it is Fellini's brother. Wow. Okay. All right. He was my, he, he was a character that I was like, Oh fuck dude. Like Jesus. Like, you 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 got to get a job now because your sister left and can't support you anymore. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> um, before we move on, I have to say, Fausto has a serious problem reading the room. Um, uh, guys, just to let you know, like we didn't go into their relationship much because I mean it's just the same old story of he's a womanizer. He's forced into a, med- a wedding because she got pregnant. His first idea was to leave, but that didn't work out, but he continues to womanize. I'm going to say womanize, but really what it is, is he continues to be really rapey. Um, (laughs) and it just gets, it goes from bad to worse for this guy. And then like we already discussed, his repercussions are his dad kind of beating him with a belt and his wife saying, if you do that again, I'm going to beat you like your dad did. And it's like the narrator said, and they're still married. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I think you undersold it a little bit, though. Like when you said, like, he was going to leave town at the beginning, like he wasn't just going to leave town. Like my man was ready to ride the rails. Like he was he was hopping the fence and running to the next country. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, um, absolutely. He was ready to rock and roll. So, yeah. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I mean, uh, great movie, though, guys. It's on Criterion. Watch it. Like, you will not be disappointed. Um, it's not on the same level as Kabiria, but to be fair, neither of them's on the same level as Lestrada, in my opinion. I think Lestrada is his best work. Um, but, I mean, in terms of early movie careers, it's kind of fucking crazy that he was able to make this movie. Um, the White Sheet, Knights of Kabiria, all these movies that he made, and the first like 10 to 15 years of his career, it's nuts. I mean, cause he made, he made this movie. Then a year later, he made La Strada. And then two years later, he made Knights of Kiberia. 
Yeah. Which is insane. Um, so are you ready to move on to Nice Kabiria? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh, I, I do want to shout out the uh, the Criterion Channel restoration, which I think was done in 2019. Um, there, there's a little uh, like mess, like a little you know the title card at the front that talks about the restoration a little bit. Um, is really something else. I saw this on the old Criterion DVD like a long time ago. I don't know, eight years ago, something like that. Before this new restoration. And uh, this new restoration is beautiful. This movie was in rough shape before the restoration. And the restoration is just, it's incredible. Um, so shout out to, shout out to those, whoever did that restoration. It's, it's beautiful now. Um, but anyways, yeah. Knights of Kiberia. Um, so Knights of Kiberia has his muse in it. Uh, Julieta Messina. That's how you say your name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is about the description from, uh, IMDB is a wayfish prostitute wanders the streets of Rome looking for true love, but finds only heartbreak. I don't know if I've ever read a more accurate description of a movie. Um, <laughs> because boy, oh boy. And you know what, Carrie, you know what just, you know what picks up this movie and just puts it on her back and like ignores the fact that this movie could have fallen apart in so many ways and not work. But once again, Messina is just a workhorse. Yeah. And she just dominates this movie in every possible way. Nobody even gets close to her performance in this movie. Uh, it's fucking crazy. Like, I, you know, she, I think, she captures so much. I mean, I, I, I like this movie better than La Strada, but like I, 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 will, I will obviously hear arguments that La Strada is the better movie or the more important or whatever. Like, sure, fine. But I think this is Messina's greatest performance just because she doesn't have anybody else like really competing for screen time like Zampano, you know, uh, in La Strada. Like this is her movie. And like she is. I mean, she's nothing short of amazing. This is one of the greatest performances, I think, in cinema's history. Like she is um, she, she takes the character that she plays in La Strada and adjusts it right it's 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 kind of like gina rollins in under the influence a woman under the influence where like she takes the uh or i mean really any great actor really where they take their their tics and their their persona their you know screen presence and the things that they do and they just subtly adjust them to this specific character this specific um you know wayfish prostitute and uh Man, oh man, it, it, it's just, and you can tell that you can tell the Fellini is just like, you know, you watch you watch Jean Luc Godard movies with Anna Karina, and Godard is obsessed with her. He is besotted uh, by her and, and can't look away from her. I feel like Fellini is not doing that to Messina. He's not male gazing her. He really is kind of. Um, giving her like a perfect role or something. You know what I mean? It's not, his camera is not objectifying her. His camera is in kind of in awe of her genius and her, her performing ability. It's, um, it's astonishing. It's such an amazing performance. Uh, I, honestly, if I had to like, I love to make lists. If I sat down and make a list of, of the top 10 greatest female performances I've ever seen, um, this this and Lestrada would be in my top ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's unreal. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, when, so when thinking of things to compare this to, I mean, like I think of like Maria Falconetti and like Passion of Joan of Arc. You know, like it's like like it's that good. It, it's that unusual, and that um, just her face is so expressive, and it's it's really it's really incredible. Um, so this movie, look, this movie is so fucking bleak and dramatic to be as funny as it is. It's unreal. <laughs> and only her performance could have done this. So yeah, yeah. just real quick guys, we open up with her walking down through this field with this guy. Now, was this guy her boyfriend? I'm assuming so. Was it her pimp? Who knows? There's something there. She trusts him. And he shoves her in the water and takes her purse right? the other way around. He takes her purse and shoves her in the water. Right. And I don't mean he shoved her in the water as like oh, yeah. a distraction method to run away. I mean, he tried to murder her. <laughs> this is um, uh, we, the guy in Sunrise, like, you know, like pushing his wife yeah. out of the boat. That's exactly what's happening here. We have to assume at some point she told him that this might be a, this might be too strong of an assumption. She told him that she couldn't swim. So he took that to heart and he shoves her out this fucking, he shoves her in this river and she is floating down this river for like a solid two minutes. I'm pretty sure. Um, And these guys get her out and they turn her upside down and she's just angry. She's, she's lost her shoe. She does not give a shit that they saved her. She's embarrassed. She's pissed. She's hurt. So much emotion being conveyed. And that's where the brilliance starts. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from there, it just turns into one of the weirdest nights, I guess, because she runs into a movie star, which is by far my favorite segment. Yeah. Um, because she's just so happy to be in his house and she asked for like a photo to be signed and she's so animated with everything. She's like, they're never like, no, nobody ever has sex in this movie, but she's a prostitute and everything is like alluded to. Um, but like when he takes her home, he doesn't even try anything. Right. Like that was like, that's why it goes back to your point of like, this isn't like the male gaze. This is her living. Like, this is just her. She's performing. She's living. Um, but yeah. And, and she's like locked in this guy's bathroom for what we have to assume is like two or three hours. Right. And, and she's just fine. Like she's, <laughs> she's just, and then she just, and then she leaves and, uh, and, you know, the, the the biggest heartbreaking scene of the movie, obviously, aside from the ending, is the magician show. Um, I was really I was really disturbed by that scene. Yeah. Um, what did you think of that scene? Because basically he bra- he he hypnotizes her guys to make her think that there's a guy named Oscar and they're in love. And she is talking to Oscar like that is the case. But Oscar isn't real. And this is happening in front of a group of onlookers. Yeah, I mean, it's, what did you think of that scene? I mean, it's it's embarrassing. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, one of the things you kind of have to get past. I mean, not you, but just the viewer. You're like, one of the things like the viewer, you know, has to get past is like, oh, like we're taking like uh, hypnotism at face value here. You know, like we're we're assuming that 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 hypnotism is real and that she is being, you know, hypnotized. And it's uh, it, it, it's it's brutal, man. Like it's, 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 it's brutal and it's sad. And like, you know, it, it is that, that classic, like Julieta Messina thing where it's like, she, she does that. She does that Cary Grant thing where it's like, um, you know, 
like one minute she's being like very funny and like essentially being a clown. Right. I mean, obviously that was, you know, her role in La Strada. Like she's essentially being a clown and, and, you know, kind of the facial expressions and she's just like, you know, the way she waddles and it's just like very funny. And then like with like the change of a facial expression, like with the change of a few muscles in her face and her eyes looking a certain way. And all of a sudden the scene is now tragic. Now, now the scene is sad and it's uh boy, oh boy. Well, I mean, when you, when you start talking about that level of talent, I mean, you're talking about something only a handful of actors can really do. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's rough, man. Uh, because when she turns, you know, when she does that, when she, when she turns the film dark, it's like a shadow goes over the film, you know? And like, where it w- was, you know, for a moment there, it was funny. Uh, now it's bleak again, you know, it's uh, and it's all her, right? Like it's, I mean, I know it's Fellini cause he's the one making the movie. He's the one directing the actor, but there's, there's no camera tricks. There's no, you know, it, it's, it's just her and it's uh, it, it's incredible, you know? And, you know, just, just to, to make the ending, more to make it more sense to you guys i mean this isn't a spoiler if you haven't seen it and don't want to know the ending don't listen uh go watch it if you haven't seen it but there's a guy in the audience whose name is oscar Mm. allegedly and he says hey you know that i think that meant something so he basically fools her into being in a relationship even though she's she's she is like she's resisting the whole time and she's not sure but he finally sells her on it and she sells her house and she tells all her friends and this very emotional scene with her best friend at the uh, at the bus where, where the bus stop where she's getting on. And like, honestly, I knew the movie was pretty dark, but I but it's like. I don't know, you know, when I the very first time you watch it, you're like, well, what's going to happen? Yeah. Um. So he. He he's very nervous and he's sweating and and it, it it is so depressing because when they go on a walk through the woods and he wants to show her the sunset and it's so depressing when they get there and she's the one who has to say you want to kill me don't you yeah 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 like oh. she's the one who has to take control and say no you're gonna shove me off this bridge this a fucking cliff. And take my money because he is so fucking nervous. But that speaks to her distrust and just overall view of life. And from there, it just goes off the rail. She's freaking out, obviously. Um, She gives him the money and then she's like, just kill me. Like, I don't want to live anymore. And no part of that scene was overplayed, in my opinion. I thought she was perfect. No, I mean, Um, it's I mean, it's incredible. And. You know, it's like, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like you're in her position at the end, right? Because you're you're thinking, remind me of like Cleo from Cleo from five to seven. Is that the name of that Agnes Varda movie? Um, Yeah. It reminded me of that a little bit, except for you're you're even that much more on her side than you are uh, Cleo's Um, because you're you know, you're thinking like, please don't let anything bad happen to her again. Like, come on, please, you know, please let this work out. Like I, come on, 
you know and then when it doesn't you're just like it, like you're in you're kind of in the same position as her right like because you're like something's bad is gonna happen isn't it you know and that's that's literally what she says like that you want to fucking kill me don't you okay all right fine just fucking kill me you know and it's like oh my god it's just it's brutal you know um and and what i think is what i think is really the worst for me i can't speak for for anybody else who watched it but for me it's like it would have been better if he would have just killed her like <laughs> i would have felt better as a viewer if he had shoved her off the cliff because now you know her character has to go on heartbroken and destroyed and and literally broke in a part of the town and a part of the country she doesn't know and i know the movie ends with her having a smile on her face and and the people she's walking down the streets with saying we're all lost and and this and that but i'm sorry that is not a happy ending and well, see, and, and 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 i don't want to be cold but i do wish she had just died I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I definitely don't think it's a happy ending, but I think it's. I think it's a complicated ending, and I think. Well, it's definitely complicated. I mean, I think you you have to almost take into consideration Fellini's other work, right? Because, like, you know, when Fellini, you know, portrays himself, right? He portrays. Uh, not not neurotic, but like, uh, just kind of confused. You know, I'm, specifically, I'm thinking of Marcello Mastroianni in La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half, and he portrays himself as you know, sort of confused and bemused and kind of doesn't know what to do and is just kind of wishy washy and um, you know. Uh, much the same way that male directors often do in their movies. You know, they, they have, they finally have the courage to portray themselves, you know, because it's a surrogate thing, the same way Hitchcock always used to make his males impotent and, you know, kind of, uh, sexual, you know, paranoiacs or whatever. And so when Fellini portrays himself, it's, it's as this kind of like wishy-washy, like, oh, I don't know, vaguely creative guy who sells out and is just kind of, uh. whereas when he portrays the characters he really admires, right? Two of them notably played by Julieta Messina, like in La Strada and in this and in Cabiria. These are the characters he admires, I think. These are the characters who he really uh, looks up to or idolizes. You know, he idolizes them in the same way that Sternberg idealize, von Sternberg idealizes Marlene Dietrich, right? Or Michael Bay idealizes an explosion, right? Fellini is, could not be more taken and more kind of um, uh, just morally, you know, into... Uh, this this type of character this kind of like oh well you know say la vie type character who's just kind of like happy go lucky you know and i think he saw himself as the opposite of this and i think that's important because at the end of eight and a half what is the climactic ending of eight and a half the ending of eight and a half after fellini you know the whole movie what is my movie going to be about what is my movie going to be about i don't know what it's going to be about it's going to be a fucking spaceship and it's going to be this it's going to be this it's going to be this and he doesn't know what to make a movie about and then finally he has that moment of acceptance 
where all the characters from all the different scenarios and all the different people from all the times in his life, they join together in one big circle and they're singing a song and there's a band playing and there's a circus tent. And it's one final moment of acceptance where Fellini or Mastriolani as Fellini is finally able to get washed away in the tide of acceptance of, of, of not of neurotic artistry, right? But of just let it going with the flow, kind of releasing yourself into the void and just letting the tide take you away. Right. And I think that is what she reaches at the end of this. Right. Not some, not some kind of bullshit Zen thing, but in some kind of like, you know, I'm not the type of person to kill myself. Right. Like I am happy go lucky. Generally, I may get sad. I may get happy. I may get wrapped up in a love affair. I may get treated badly. But at the end of the day, this is what I am. I am a happy go lucky away fish prostitute. That is my character. That is Kabiria. It's not that it's a happy ending. It's just that this is her nature. And this is the kind of nature that Fellini respected and revered. And in his best moment, turned himself into. He wanted to emulate her, right? And then, whenever Fellini makes another movie with Messina, he makes Juliet of the Spirits, and he he doesn't let her be laissez-faire, go with the tide, go with the flow, happy-go-lucky. He turns her into a neurotic like him, turns her into this complicated housewife it's like the woman's version of eight and a half and it's a failure i think i think juliet of the spirits is a failure because it's not it's not what he loved about messina it's i think he ran out of ideas at that point and i think this movie makes sense in the context of his career because this is what he admired this is what he loved about her so much was this happy-go-lucky nature and so that's how i kind of read the ending and anyways, yeah, I've talked long enough. So I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? So basically, we could have summed up what you thought of the ending by just saying it's the Popeye complex, um, which is <laughs> I, I am what I am. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah. Like this is this is not the, this is not the type of woman to kill herself. This is not, the, you know, some people don't have it in them to, <laughs> to ride the old silver bullet train, you know, like. And, First of all, she can't because she's Catholic. We all know Catholics <laughs> can't off themselves. I'm serious. Yeah, I mean, it's um, true that that has to play into it. Um, but but you know, and, and I and I do agree with your assessment for the most part. I still would have been happier if she had died. Um, and, and and that's not me being mean or, or or trying to be funny or dark. I'm being serious, like from how I viewed the movie, because I was just left with such sadness about her character. Um. Right. But I, I, I do I do need to point out one scene, though, that I skipped over that was just beautiful. And it's when they all go to the church and light their candles and mm-hmm. they they all want to be transformed. It's the whole I don't fully understand the Catholic thing about Madonna and all that, but they all want to be transformed. They light their candles. They ask for shit. And then they're all sitting around after it and there's like shit everywhere people are just uh, you know dispersing it's all kind of winding down and she just has a moment where she's like looking around and she's like we're all the same none of us changed like right. and it's like wow that's uh that's astute and dark <laughs> so 
it really was a powerful scene to me. I really, I really liked it. See, I think that's, um, you know, I, I think there are some people who would look at, who would look at the, the state of Messina at the end of that movie and be like, wow, that's the most depressing thing I've ever seen. I think Fellini looked at it and was like, isn't that incredible? And, you know, hey, it, it's it's a point of view. You know, I, I can't say. I have it on. I have it on good authority. Fellini was just an alcoholic nymphomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> so so who the fuck knows what he was thinking? Um, No, I see what you mean, though. I mean, and honestly, if you I may rewatch this movie in a year. And I may completely get a different interpretation of how I feel about the ending. That's the beauty of the movie. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. No, don't um, get me wrong. I'm not like, I'm not saying like, I'm not, I'm not saying like, wow, I, I see Fellini's true intention. Like, no, I agree with you. It's, it's fucking bleak. But like just thinking about it from his perspective and what he seemed to love so much about Messina, the kind of roles he casts her in, the, the kind of roles that he casts himself. And even going back to, you know, Ividaloni, where he's, you know, focusing on that kid at the end, that, that kid who's just kind of like, what do you want to move away for? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, it's uh, he sympathizes with that or he admires it or reveres it in some way that that perspective of, uh yeah, I don't, I'm not. I'm not going to be neurotic about this. I'm just going to let life happen to me. Um, and he he certainly wasn't that way, but he certainly admired it. I think um, this this movie was the masterpiece. Right. But I I still say that it's it's not on the same level as Lestrada. Her performance is better in Lestrada to me. I think that it requires a bit more from her. But honestly, I think what gives Lestrada the edge over this movie, as fantastic as it is. Is it, it's, it was, I mean, it came first. That's the most simple way to say it. Lestrada came first. Yeah. If Kabiria had came first, who the fuck knows? Um, yeah, so. I, I think, I think, um, I think Lestrada and I think, you know, I, I look, I usually look at it as like tears, you know, I think, I think this Lestrada, um, well, Dolce Vita and eight and a half and Amarcord are about on the same level. My own personal preference is always going to be for this, for Knights of Kiberia and La Dolce Vita. And I, I don't even really necessarily know why I don't think, um, yeah, probably vibes, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Cause La Dolce Vita really missed the mark on me. Um, it was not the sweet life for me. Um, so yeah, well, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus doesn't live in all our hearts. Uh, that is the truth. Okay, guys, real quick. Uh, we're going to do process of elimination. We've talked about I Vitalini. We both agree. It's a great movie. Okay. We've talked about Knights of Kiberia. We both agree. It's a masterpiece, right? Right. So what does that leave? <laughs> um, it leaves one of the most well-orchestrated prank movies I've ever seen. Um, it leaves me in a state of anger not just with Fellini and with life in general after watching it, but it leaves me in a state of anger with you. Um, you picked Fellini and you picked these three movies. And then I believe your exact words were, I want to watch Satyricon because I rage quit it like five years ago and I want to finish it. So this is a good time to do it. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't five was years punishment. ago. It was actually 12 years ago. This was punishment. I hope to all that is holy 
that you were miserable watching this movie. Um, <laughs> but but before we get to it, guys, I'll tell you. You know what? The the only word of of the fucking uh, synopsis that that makes any sense is disjointed. Um, a series of disjointed mythical tales set in first century Rome. Um, God damn it! Like, what you think? Okay, well, first things first. I just want to say that you're being a little bitch about all this. All right, I just want. I am that. not. I am not being a little bitch. This movie was ridiculous. It was. It, it was one of the most beautiful, like ambitious like pranks i swear to god i'm just gonna keep calling it a prank um all right so brass what you tacks. think <laughs> I, I i didn't love it um i do respect it though um i uh yeah i, I watched i watched it about 12 years ago when i was when i was first encountering fellini's work for the first time uh this was too much for me i you know i got eight and a half i got Dolce Vita became one of my favorite movies back then. Uh, I watched Amarcord and I was just like, I kind of get it. And then I, of course, I grew to love that movie um, as the years went on. Um, Satyricon, I rage quit because it was just, uh, man, it was just a tough watch. And, you know, it's still a tough watch. Um, basically, what, what is it with Fellini getting characters to like motorboat, like <laughs> big breasted women? Um <laughs> It's really bizarre because in Amrecord, it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's yeah. Like, here we I mean, go. Even in eight and a half and, a little bit, you know, um, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. And in this movie, it's like, I feel it. I want it. And then he just shoves his face and he's just two huge breasts. Um, that's the that's probably the most normal thing that happens. Um, it might be. It might be. Yeah, so I mean, you know, basically just for our listener, this this movie's not available to stream anywhere. You essentially have to uh well, I guess it's on YouTube. Um you watch it on YouTube, right? Yeah. I uh I bought the uh Criterion edition of it uh because I was really committed to watching it, understanding it and trying to, you know, reckon with it because it's you Oh, know, look at you. You're so committed. <laughs> I am. I am committed. I'm committed to the bit. Uh, I, I wanted to, um, you know, really kind of uh, dig into one of, uh, you know, Fellini's, I think, least understood films. Um, and I don't think it did any good. But um, basically what we have is we have um, a man who is uh, uh, two men who are in love with each other. One of them is like a boy slave. Um, it's un the ages are unclear. So don't. Uh, don't ding me for anything problematic. I don't know what I don't know what's going on there. But... Uh, I'm sorry. You could use the word problematic to sum up this whole fucking movie. <laughs> all right, calm down. All right, <laughs> bring in some real hostile energy here. I have a lot of hostile energy about this movie, but we'll get to it. Please continue. All right, so it's about these two lovers, these two men, and they basically um, are. One of them gets sold as a slave boy and he gets like sold and is basically chased through a series of ancient Roman vignettes. And, you know, we, we like some of the scenes that we, that we run through, there's, you know, a tenement building, the, then the earthquake happens. Um, there is a brothel. There's a big party, kind of a bacchanalian party that happens. There's a theatrical performance. Um, there is a pirate ship. There is, um, uh, there's just a lot. There's just a lot of different vignettes that happen. It's set in ancient Rome. 
Um, it's based on an actual Roman novel. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. What are some of the vignettes, I guess, that you hated the most or hated the least or, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the one, okay. So I will say this, some of that was to be amusing, but some of it was real. Um, I will say this. It doesn't matter what movie this pops up in. I I can literally reference probably five things right now. I watched as a child that still haunt me to this day, but anytime a Minotaur shows up, shit gets real. Okay. (laughs) Minotaurs terrify me. They are, they are God, dude. The old tale of the ma- the Minotaur in the middle of the maze. Yeah. You know, one of my first experiences with Minotaurs was the original Batman show. Um, and he had to solve a a Riddler's maze, and the Minotaur was in the middle of the maze. I don't remember it's that ter- episode. Terrified me. Yeah, dude, it's fantastic. Okay. Um, okay, so, and then Minotaurs pop up, obviously, and, and anything you watch dealing with fantastical elements or, or old Greek shit, Rome shit, any of that. Um. So he fights a minotaur, but it's a man in a mask, which somehow seems more menacing because <laughs> the fact that you're wearing this, this, this bullhead and you're not responding to this guy's pleas makes it more menacing because I know there's a dude under there. Like you could answer me, but you don't want to. Um, so he's just pursuing him. And then he finally has him in a killing stroke. And he's like, no, I'm telling you, don't do this. Like, I don't deserve this. And the guy like takes the help that the head off and he starts laughing. And it's like, Jesus, um, that's probably <laughs> by far my favorite thing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, this is a movie filled with set pieces and set pieces as designed by Fellini. Right. Like gorgeous, gorgeous set pieces. I'm talking set pieces way ahead of their time. The, this movie was, was shot on such an epic scope. Like that is the best way to, that's the, the most positive thing I can say about this movie is it was ambitious. It was ahead of its time. Fucking crazy. Yeah. I mean the, the the way that he filmed this was at the, I I never know how to say it. Cinecita or Chinechita. I don't know how you say it. Uh, but the, the, giant film studio in Rome that was um, basically the giant film studio. You know, obviously we had, you know, quite a few of them in the classic Hollywood days, but this is like the one in Rome and um, the one where they filmed contempt and they filmed a lot of like big international co-productions. And this in 1969 was the biggest, most expensive movie to have ever been filmed there. And like the first half of the movie takes place in what is clearly an indoor set. And it reminded me of like, it reminded me of an old Hollywood musical where it's very clearly taking place inside of a set. I mean, obviously you don't get like, you know, it's not like some kind of meta cinema thing. Like it's not like you see the camera set up and the lights and everything, but it's very clear that like they're in a big warehouse of some sort, an airplane hangar, you know, film studio basically. And, yeah, honestly, um, it made me think of like a rear window type set. Yeah. Like yeah. like a really big scale, like you're on a set, but you don't care because it's so beautiful. Right, right, right. Like it's a big artificial set. And that only lasts for about a, a, a half of the movie, I would say, or maybe even a little bit less than half. And then we go outside. That's when we're in the desert and we're on a boat and we're, you know, whatever. Um, 
you know, the, the, thing, the thing that really kind of annoys me about this and that I really have a, a difficult time getting around is just the kind of cartoonish, like, performance styles and, like, the, you know, the, like, they're throwing food on each other and it's, like, really, uh, man, the vibes are just off, you know? Like, this is an anti-vibes movie. And so, like, I don't really enjoy it on any level. But, like, at a certain point, I'm like, man, it you really it really took some fucking balls to make something like this, right? Like, you really have to be, like, committed to the bit, you know? And, like, to hear him talk about it, he talks about it, like, as, you know, obviously this is kind of his ode to ancient Rome, you know, obviously. Um, but also, you know, it's kind of, he, he mentioned that it's kind of like a metaphor for the 60s, you know, the free love, you know. It was made in 1969, you know, um, and it's it, it like, you know, instead of being like a kind of beautiful cinematic fantasia, it's almost like we're in like Dante's Inferno. It's like we're going through the nine circles of hell. Like it's it's kind of a rough hang most of the time, you know. I mean, it's a very rough hang. There's a lot of shit that happens where you just don't want to. um you don't want to see it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, it, it's, it's like, obviously is based on, on not just, not just like this old play, but also it's based on real Rome. Like, right. This is real hedonism. This is debauchery. This is insanity. I mean, uh, a, a fucking society that destroyed itself because of, of this hedonistic lifestyle. Right. So there's right. so much of that. There's so much gross shit like it's it's but I will tell you this is going to sound crazy. OK, but one thing I thought of when I finished it was, look, I didn't enjoy that at all. OK, right. it, not not even a bit, um, but it was still a fun watch in a twisted saw type way right. um, because it's not only ambitious, but watching it through the lens of now where everything and I don't want to harp on this, but it's relevant to the subject. Everything, as I pointed out, is so homogenized and 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 fake and shitty and franchise and right. and all this shit. But I remember ten years ago watching Inception, and Inception made no sense. Really, it still doesn't. Uh, I don't give a shit what your explanation is. Uh, it makes no sense. Look, I can but, explain Inception, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> It's beautiful. It's original. The set pieces are crazy. The spinning hallway that Nolan had built, everything about it screams ambition, okay? It's kind of what Tenet should have been, except it was a pile of shit. Um, <laughs> so with this movie, that's what I think of, man. Like watching it through the scope of 2021, like this movie is ambitious. This movie is different. It was, it was just something that no one had seen at that point. You know, it was just bizarre. It was over the top. It was nasty. It was inappropriate. And, and, a, and, a, and a piece of it, that's what made it so interesting to me. Like, so, so I didn't like it, but as a piece of art, it really holds up. Like, it's like, it's like a John Waters thing on steroids. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's just, so there was something like, it's like, um, kind of like Crash. It's like there's something beautiful in this awfulness. There's right. something beautiful in this burn victim. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's like, you know, it's kind of like, uh, and, and there are a couple of like, kind of like astonishing sequences, man. Like I, I, I thought that earthquake sequence was really fucking cool, man. Like that, that I thought was really impressive. When, when the, when, where they live was falling apart. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. It's at, it's mind blowing. I still don't know how I did it. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, like it, it looked like, um, I mean, I don't know what it looked like. It looked like, it looked like, uh, I mean, it looked like an earthquake, obviously, but it looked like it was happening on such a massive scale, you know, like, you know, your earthquakes in old movies, you know, now, of course, it's all CGI. But like earthquakes in old movies, it's like, oh, like, there's like a model of a building shaking. And it's like, no, like, somehow the entire set collapsed. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know, yeah. maybe they did just collapse the entire fucking set. I don't know. But it, but it like, it looked incredible. And there's like, there's a couple of moments that I thought were really um uh, powerful too where like like there's one moment where you're sitting up in like you're in the like tenement building where they they go back and the earthquake is about to happen and the camera like pans up to the sky for like the first time and you're like it's like an unusual feeling because you're like oh yeah there's the sky because we've been in this uh kind of like cloistered like airplane hangar giant movie set atmosphere and it's just like oh yeah this is supposed to be outside and there's just like beautiful you know obviously it's just it's a studio backdrop right it's not the real sky but it's i don't know there's just it's like a striking shot and uh there's some other stuff at the beginning where like they're just like walking along the walls and then of course at the end whenever it just kind of ends in the middle of a sentence uh, like the original novel does and the characters turn into paintings on a wall and like, I don't know, man, like that, like the various times throughout this movie, I was bored. I was disgusted. I was, you know, uh, just kind of enduring, but then something like that would happen. I'd be like, Oh my God, that's incredible. They all turned into paintings. Like, that's great. Like, you know, obviously the, the implication being that like all of this shit that you just saw, like, these are all just like ghosts of the past, you know, like this was all play right? These, the, the, all the people in this movie are real people in the year 1969. The actual people, they're just fucking ghosts in, 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 uh, you know, egg tempura on a wall, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. So, there's some moments like that scattered through here that I thought were really, uh, profound or interesting. Well, I mean, I will say that it ended much better than it started, which I don't know how much credit that's giving it. Cause it started with two grown men fighting over a young boy. Um, but they never uh, say I his do, age though. So we don't know. That is true. You know. That is true. Um, but I will say I did love the end of it when it, tra- when it switched over to a painting, a piece of me kind of thought about Andre Rublev, um, a little bit with that closing right. shot with that music of just being on a painting. Right, and, right, right, right. Uh, That's a good compare. I, I didn't even think of that. That's a good comparison. It was really beautifully done, but I, I, I cannot give this movie more credit. Um, <laughs> it was ambitious. It was beautiful in certain aspects. There was a grotesque beauty to it. I don't know what made him make this movie, but I stand by the fact. I mean, I need to round out his filmography because I've only seen four movies past 1968. Um, but I, I still stand by the fact that he did not make a good movie past 1963. So, 
Well, um, you know, past what year? 1963? Yeah, that was the year Eight and a Half came out. I mean... You know, I, I well, oh, wait, no, I love Amarcord. No, I, uh, no, I, I, I think, you know, the, the period is definitely marked by excess. You know, there, I mean, there's, there's, all, there's also the problem of just running out of ideas, you know, like, I think that happens to a lot of directors. And that's, I mean, Hitchcock ran out of ideas after Marnie, you know, um, and he kept making movies, you know, that, that, that shit happens, you know, and I, I do think, um, you know, there's some struggle there, but I do, I do think Amor Court is perfect. I do think that, that there's a t- he there, there's a oh, tinge of the brakes, pal. Huh? Pump the brakes. No, Amor I do. I think, I think Amor Court is incredible. There, there's a see, but see, Amor Court, there's a personal link. You know, Th- this is just Fellini satiric on ancient Rome. You know, this is just uh, a broad brush. Whereas Amor Court is like, no, he's getting back to that like I Vitaloni uh, small town that he's from. You know, and that's that's why I love Amarcord so much. But um, well, just just to close out, I want I want because you said why did he make this? I just wanted to mention a couple things uh, that I read uh, for his reasoning behind making this, and I mean they're not groundbreaking or anything, but just they're just kind of interesting. One of them was that his original intent when making this movie was to make a kind of um, kind of like a Godard's contempt. Like he wanted to make a big international co-production that was for American audiences. Um, and obviously he failed at that. He did not like, and he, he admitted that he failed at that. He was like, that's what I started out trying to make. And I didn't end up making that, um, which I think is maybe kind of interesting because Juliet of the spirits came out in 65 and was a huge commercial failure. And he followed it up with this motherfucker. And he, did not intend to, it kind of got away from him. Um, and, uh, actually two other bits. One of them was he, uh, kept trying to make a movie throughout the latter half of his career, say like 65 on, I want to say he kept trying to make a movie about a guy who died and didn't know it and was wandering through the afterlife, but he didn't know that he was wandering through the afterlife. And the culmination is him realizing he's dead, you know, and, but he never made that movie. Did M Knight know about that idea? Is that where he got the idea from? <laughs> I'm serious. Maybe. I don't know. Um, no, but no, but he was actually in the afterlife in the sense that he was like walking through like these kind of like surrealistic landscapes and he was just like, well, that's weird, but he didn't notice it, you know? Um, oh, okay. Okay. And, and the, the whole thing was, it was about accepting death, right? It was about, um, you know, learning that you're going to die. Well, he never, he, he, and he said this, I never had the guts to make that movie. Um, because I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to face it. You know, I didn't want to make that movie, a movie that serious, you know, and that, um, so preoccupied with death. And so what happened was he borrowed a lot of elements. He said that it was like, uh, that it was like a little treasure trove that he would dive into this movie for certain elements and um, you know, you kind of ransack that, that, that idea and that production and that script uh, for different story ideas, different vignettes or whatever. And um, so some stuff in here apparently comes from that. Um, so I don't know what that means. It's just information. Uh, but the final thing is that Fellini's own opinion about this movie was that he neither loved it nor hated it. He said, this is not my best movie. It's not the worst thing I've done. It, like, it wasn't a complete failure. 
there are some things I like about it, uh, but it definitely is not one of my favorite movies and one of my clearest artistic expressions. Eh. And he just kind of threw up his hands and was like, I neither love it nor hate it. So, um, so yeah. I mean, at the end, at the end of the day, if somebody asked me about this movie, I'm going to say, I'm going to use two very, like, I feel very accurate ways to describe it. Um, one, it's very ambitious. And two, he had to have balls to make this movie. I mean, right. shit, you'd have to have balls to make this movie now. Hmm. Like in 2021, it's a very edgy, interesting, um, disturbing movie on many levels. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend it. I mean, it's it's not easily available streaming, unfortunately. I would recommend it um, purely out of just curiosity's sake. I mean, see if you can, I don't know, see how far you can get. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, it's unfortunately the copy on YouTube is not the best. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's there. I, you know, I even left a comment and said, thanks for uploading this because if not, like you're, you're allowing people to watch it. Um, yeah. I mean, so it's yeah. cool that it's on there. I don't know. Hey, check it out on YouTube blind by it on Criterion, Like I did. Well, I guess I didn't blind buy it, but, um, you know, no, you were, it was worse. Instead of blind buying, <laughs> you bought a movie that you rage quit. Um, so. I'm committed, brother. I'm committed to our to our 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 uh, cinema quest here. Look, I'm going to leave you guys with this. Um, I still don't know about Fellini. The verdict's out. Um, it is not as cut and dry as I thought it was before because I was so enamored by Lestrada um, that I was like, yeah, this guy. You know, my my favorite director loves him. Lestrada's a masterpiece. I love him too. He has to be great. Here we are. A year later, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> come uh, on, man. So, the, guy, the guy that made all those movies up through eight and a half. I mean, come on. I mean, look, dude, he he is great. I'm not going to sit here and have the audacity to question the 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 quality and, and all that of, of this director. I mean, he he's probably I mean, he's he's a, he was the the the, the European director who brought for who helped bring foreign cinema to the West, like to right. America, it's true. which is a huge deal, you know? Um, so I'm not going to, to, I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't have the audacity to sit here and question that, but I mean, in terms of being on my list, I, I would have thought for sure Fellini's going to be in my top 10 directors, like easily, maybe even top five, top seven, but I just don't know. Um, it's probably going to come down to watching more of his late career movies and then rewatching all of his fantastic movies from the early of his career and see if it balances the scales. Um, yeah, there, there's some know, other early know, ones so. there that I, I know either you haven't seen or I haven't seen. Variety Lights, which I can I have seen and I can recommend. I've never seen Il Bidon, which is Me apparently either. about a Catholic priest swindler or something. I don't know. I've heard it's good, though. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I will say, I do think he's overrated. I'll tell you, I will say that. Um, cause he, he often has become, you know, similar to the way Hitchcock has become synonymous with the art form. Fellini has become synonymous with, uh, foreign cinema, uh, quote unquote, or European cinema, maybe in the same way that Kurosawa has become synonymous with Japanese cinema. Um, well, I mean, I'll tell you, it's funny you mentioned Kurosawa. He ain't no Kurosawa, and, uh, uh, you know, this ain't no Dursu Uzala. Oh, here we go. <laughs> he did it, folks. 
It took him an hour and 15 minutes, but he fucking did it. He mentioned to Urzu. To be fair, you brought up Kurosawa before I could even get it out. So I'm going to hang this on you a bit. Um, But uh, anyway, I mean, no, dude, he, he clearly, he clearly has an eye for something. I just don't know. Like if he's as great, I'll tell you this. I prefer him over Hitchcock. If we want to get down to like being overrated or or whatever. Um, Interesting. I do. I do. I would take him over Hitchcock, but we'll see. We've got a, we've got a long way to go. There's a big wide world of cinema out there. Um, and I do look forward to, to finishing his filmography or watching what's available anyway, because, uh, that's how you get to know this director. I mean, we're, we're going to get to know him with you guys, with the listeners. Um, so Fellini but volume promise, three, we promise we'll hold uh, off though on Fellini volume three. Cause you know, Sometimes too much Fellini is, is is not a good thing, you know. Sometimes I mean, you... in excess of the director who practices excess might be too much. Yeah, so. yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. Either way, I enjoyed all three of these movies. I know you know Satyricon was a rough watch, but hey, you know, as I was complaining about it to my wife, she said, you know, this may be a movie you don't enjoy, but it's a corner of cinema that you're at least getting to experience. Um, regardless of whether you like it or not. So there you go. Um, she was right. I did not tell her that. So anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, never tell them they're right. <laughs> um, guys, as Jacob pointed out in the beginning, uh, silver screen video podcast, uh, what's the, actually, what is the website? You always say it. I never know it. Oh man. That makes me think of the office when, uh, when Michael is like, Pam is a lovely person and a very good artist. And I would never tell her that. <laughs> And then Oscar's like, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, uh. But where, if they want more of this, uh, more of this witty banter back and forth, fun time, where can they go for it? Patreon.com slash silver screen video folks. It's a party over there. Uh, we're talking mad men. We're uh, rounding the corner into finishing season three, catch up or don't just listen. Uh, and we got uh, silver screen video after dark where we, uh, which there's the no shit. way to describe it. So don't bother trying <laughs> do what <laughs> I said. There's no way to describe what happens on after dark. Oh um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Our, whew, our last after dark episode or our upcoming one. I don't know when this is going to come out. Um, way to go. You dated us again. <laughs> anyway, the episode he's referring to guys is the free episode that we let out as a Patreon preview. And we hope now that you're hearing this in the future, I mean, it's not your future. It's your present. I don't want to talk tenant. Anyway, um, we hope that that free preview lets you see how much fun we're having over at after dark and maybe made you want to come join. But either way, like Jacob said, it's a party over there. It's great. Come check it out. Um, and, uh, yeah, Jacob, do you have anything to add before we get out of here? Now let's wrap it up. Okay, guys, thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video. Hope you enjoyed our Fellini Volume 2, and we will see you next week.